0: Great to uh, meet some of you new visitors. Thankful that you are here with us this morning to worship. Uh, We are in the book of Philippians, so if you have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and take out your Bible and turn to uh, Philippians. We are in chapter 3. You know, every Sunday I'm reminded of just God's good gift to us to allow us to gather as a church, and so I'm just excited for another morning to be able to dive into the scriptures. If you are visiting with us, this is our normal routine. There's nothing special, nothing flashy. Uh, we just go to God's Word, and we want to hear directly from Him. And so let's go to the Lord now in prayer and ask Him to bless our time together as we examine Philippians 3. Father, we are acknowledging now our, um, our dependence on You. We need You for all things. Uh, we need You especially for to be able to understand your truth, to be able to see Christ clearly. We thank you that you have communicated to us through your inerrant and inspired and holy word. And so we pray with fear and trembling and eagerness and excitement um, that you would please open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what does it mean to be a Christian? If you had one sentence, just one statement, someone comes to you and asks you, well, what really is Christianity? What's the essence of Christianity? How would you respond to that statement in just one sentence? Think about it. Formulate that in your mind. Someone comes and asks, how are you going to respond? Some might say to be a Christian is to be religious. Certainly people do say that. Others might say, to be a Christian means to follow the Ten Commandments. Still others might say, "Ah, Christianity means to love all people, to live in a sacrificial way and in service to others. Some might still say that to be a Christian means that you're living a life of purity, devotion, devotion. Commitment to God and his church. What would you say? How would you summarize that? Well, let me me give you what I think I would try to say if someone asked me what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian simply means that you have an experiential, saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You love him and you long to be with him. I know that's not the perfect way to put it. But that sentence, that statement is trying to capture, I think, the essence of what the Bible teaches to be in a relationship, an experiential relationship, a saving relationship, a relationship that's based on love and a relationship that's based on hope and a relationship that's based on longing to actually be with Christ. Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you long to be with him? If those things are true of you this morning, then that is a good indication that you are a genuine believer. Obedience, faithfulness, evangelizing, being on mission, fulfilling our mission statement, we exist to glorify God by magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ, ministering to his church and multiplying his disciples. All of that, all of that comes out of this very simply, do you know him Do you love him? Do you long to be with him? We live in a day where people not only think that there are many paths to God, but they've also created cheap substitutes for actually knowing God. Some think that Christianity is all about doctrinal knowledge. Do do you know doctrine? Do you know the Bible? Do you know theology? And some mistake knowing about Jesus with actually knowing Jesus. There is a difference between the two. You definitely need sound, good, biblical doctrine to know Christ, but you can know those things and not really know Jesus. Many people are very theologically precise. They have all the theological terms memorized. They are good at apologetic debates. They can engage with you on topics of things of the Bible, and yet they don't truly know the Christ of the Bible. So you can really ascertain all the nuances of high theology and Christology and soteriology and make up ologies all you want, but do you really know Jesus? Still others think that Christianity is all about deeds of righteousness, doing what is right, hating and avoiding what is wrong or evil, and they they, they think that our identity is not necessarily in Christ, but our identity is what we do for Christ. And so they measure Christianity by all the stuff that we do. Still others might think that Christianity is all about devotion to Christian ministry. And certainly we would say, yeah, in part that is true. Loving people, serving people, treating others the way that we'd want to be treated. But listen, the essence of Christianity, it comes down to knowing him personally, intimately, intimately passionately. The Bible unabashedly proclaims that Jesus Christ is God. The Bible says that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Christians live for him here on earth and they long for him to return. And so when you're trying to wrap up what the essence of Christianity is, it's not complicated. He is our greatest desire. He is our greatest pursuit. And again, if that is your heartbeat this morning, then that is a good indication that you are truly in Christ. Well, last week, we spent time contemplating the life of Paul. And we looked at when this became a reality for Paul, because he didn't always love Jesus. He didn't always long for Jesus. In fact, he was a persecutor of Christ and the church. But we looked there in the first couple of verses about his spiritual autobiography. And we took kind of this behind-the-scenes look. We have in Acts chapter 9 this wide-angle lens of Paul's conversion. But when you come to Philippians 3, and when we looked at verses 4 through 7, we got this uh, telephoto lens at Paul's heart. And we began to understand the process of what took place in his own mind, in his own thinking, as he repented and turned from sin, and counted those things that he once held in high regard as lost for the sake of coming to Christ. Remember that Paul, he used to think that he was right in God's eyes. He, he thought he was in good standing, that he had a relationship with God. And he was basing all of that on his human effort. He was basing his relationship with God on all of his moral achievements. And you remember, he said last week, hey, if anyone has a right to boast, if, any, if anyone's going to claim to have some boast, it's me. But look at my resume. Look at my life. I'm a good person. I'm faithful. I'm passionate. I'm disciplined. I'm disciplined. Who is more disciplined than me? Who is more devoted than me, Paul would say. He said there, if anyone else has confidence to put in the flesh, then I far more. And remember, he goes on and he lists those seven specific self-righteous boasts. He sincerely believed that he was right with God based on what he did. And again, just by way of reminder, he he pointed it to his heredity. He said, I'm circumcised on the eighth day. He pointed to his nationality. He said, I'm of the nation of Israel. He pointed to his pedigree. And he said, I am of the tribe of Benjamin, his ethnicity. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews to his piety as to the law of Pharisee. He pointed even to his intensity, that he was a zealous and a persecutor of the church. And like much of the world, he pointed to his morality. When he said, as to righteousness, which comes from the law, found blameless. And all that he once held in high esteem, what he once banked on as his currency to earn acceptance with God, it was all a lie. And he bought into that. All of his assets, all of his privileges, all of his performance didn't truly gain him acceptance with God. It didn't matter that he was a man of deep conviction. It didn't matter that he was a stalwart of scripture it didn't matter how sincere he was because what we discovered that as sincere as paul was he was sincerely wrong he had all his eggs in this basket but the truth was trusting in his accomplishments rather than the atonement of christ it only accumulated further condemnation paul wasn't just bankrupt What he says is, I was actually incurring more and more debt. He was piling up a mountain of debt. All those things that he thought was making him right with God was actually an accusation against him. Trusting in the advantages of his birth and all the attainments, they proved to be deficits rather than assets. And when confronted by the risen Lord, he realized, wait a second, I'm still dead in my trespasses and sins. But Paul was spiritually dead, and he needed a new currency, a currency that he couldn't produce on his own. And that's where we saw the great exchange there in verse 7. Look there at the text. Paul makes this sharp turn in verse 7. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, See, in contrast to all of Paul's religious achievements and his man-centered accolades, in contrast to all of his self-righteousness, you have Christ standing alone in all of his righteousness. And so he says in verse 8, well, more than that, I count all things as lost um, because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ Paul, he he lists all of these advantages that people would, would die to have. That kind of reputation, that kind of pedigree, that kind of privilege, that kind of piety. People looked at Paul and thought he was a stellar saint. And yet he says all that was dung. John Calvin said of Paul, he said, Paul declares, that he not only abandoned everything that he formerly reckoned precious, but that it stank like excrement to him. Paul, he considered all of his former gains as loss. He considered all things as loss. But listen, it's not just about losing. That's not the end of the story. The reality is that we lose in order to gain. It's we let go of that closed fist because there's something so much more valuable and precious and eternal and beautiful over here. It makes letting go of this so much easier when this is far superior. You see, Paul's religious resume it used to be his pride and his joy. But all that impeccable law-keeping only kept him from a true knowledge of Christ. So he, he has to move all that Pharisaical fastidiousness. He needs to move it from the assets column to the deficits column but he needs to put something else over here because you cannot get to heaven. You cannot have a relationship with God with just a zero balance. If you want to go to heaven, if you want to have eternity, you need something else other than a blank slate. You need perfect righteousness. You need Christ righteousness. Well, how do we get that? How do we get that? We know that Jesus, Jesus is the only asset that's big enough both to cancel our debt and at the same time to credit our accounts. So how do we get Jesus over here? Well, let's look at our text. Starting in verse 8, Paul says this, More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Christ. Verse nine, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Here's our main idea if you're taking notes this morning. In Philippians 3, 9 through 11, Paul provides us with three glorious returns that come from counting Jesus as supremely valuable. Three glorious returns that come from counting Jesus as surpassingly valuable. To know Christ and to be found in him means that you have righteousness, relationship, and a resurrection. Righteousness, relationship, and a resurrection. And these three blessings, they not only outweigh any other asset that the world has to offer, but in fact, you can look at those three things and say, hey, that is Christianity. Christianity is about righteousness. It is about relationship. And it's when those two things marry in perfect harmony, and we are resurrected to be with God forever. So let's begin with righteousness in verse 9. Paul says he wants to be found in him. Now, this particular verse, verse 9, realistically, you can take several months just to preach on this verse because it's jam-packed with theology. Books have been written just on verse 9 alone. But let's begin here. The beauty of the Christian gospel is that God finds us in Christ. You see, to be found is in the passive voice, meaning that it's something that happens to us. It's not something that we actively do, but it's something that God did. And so he places us in Christ. It's God's doing. He positions us in such a way that when he looks at you, You look at you in the mirror, like maybe this morning, and some of you don't really like what you see, or you need to make some changes, whether it's the hair or the weight or whatever else. You're looking at the outward you. When God looks at you, do you know what he sees? If you're in Christ, he sees Christ. He sees Christ's beauty and majesty, and he sees Christ's righteousness when he sees you. Well, it's not just that, but the first blessing we receive from being found in Christ is righteousness. You see, we can't understand God. We can't understand the Bible. We can't understand who we are and what we need without understanding what righteousness actually means. So the starting place is this right here. God is righteous. That—that That is the message of the Bible, that God is a righteous God. Psalm 92 verse 15 says, Yahweh is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Psalm 145 verse 17 says, Yahweh is righteous in all of his ways and holy in all of his works. And so when you discover the God of the Bible, what you discover is that he's holy, he's pure, he's perfect, he's blameless, he's beautiful in his character, in his being, in his deeds and actions. And when God created man, we know that he created them man, male and female. And he created them in his own image, the Bible tells us. And he created them to be like him and with him. You see, in order for the creator and man to have a relationship, there must be righteousness. There must be. But we know from Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve fell. They ruined the relationship with God because they chose what was unrighteous. And so, as a result of sin and selfishness, because of their rebellion, all the human race falls into sin and there is a disruption in relationship. And everyone since Adam and Eve suffers from the same problem. We lack righteousness. And so how do we recover this righteousness? How how do we reestablish this relationship with God? And the answer is, you don't. You can't. You can't do it. The biblical answer is, God does it for you. There was only one solution. There's not many solutions. The solution was for God to send his perfect son. Being made in the form of God without sin, to live a perfect life that you couldn't live, to die a death that you deserved, hanging on a cross, still forgiving and loving and obedient to the Father's will, dying, being buried, raising from the grave. That was the only way. So God's ultimate plan was to provide this righteousness that we desperately needed that we couldn't get on our own. But still, people think that there's other ways to get this righteousness. And you need to tell people there's only two ways. There's only two ways. One is the right way, one is the wrong way. One is the biblical way, one is the unbiblical way. One is a works based righteousness. A works based righteousness is the righteousness that we pursue on our own. And the other is a faith based righteousness it is the trusting, it is the confidence. It is the dependence on God to provide what we so desperately need. For too long, I was about works-based righteousness. For too long, you were about works-based righteousness. Because in our own mind, we kind of calculated that we weren't as bad as other people. That God would accept us because we weren't like so-and-so. That's how a lot of people think today. I'm not like Hitler. I know I'm not like Mary, the mother of Jesus, but I'm somewhere in between. And if you're in between, you must be pretty good. The reality is you don't have to orchestrate the Holocaust. You don't have to give birth to the Savior. If Hitler and Mary don't have Christ's righteousness, they're both going to hell. No one gets a free pass the Bible is very clear that we need perfection. Not I am better than so-and-so. Not even I'm the best. No, you need perfection and you don't have it. Only Christ's perfect righteousness is the acceptable currency in God's view. But a faith-based righteousness, well, that's totally different. That's righteousness that comes from Christ. And it's... Obtained by being found in him. 150 times in Paul's letters, he talks about the believer's identity as being in him, in Christ, in Jesus. This is positional. And if we are in Christ, then we're justified before God. And there's no better place to be. But listen, if you are not in him, then you are what? Out. I remember going to uh, run some errands one time. Parked the car, I go, I come back, and I see that dreaded envelope on the windshield. And I said, wait a second. I know that I was in the right space of time. So I go and look, and I, Did I park in the one hour, not the two hour? And I look, and I know I had two hours. What, what, what's going on here? And so I actually grabbed the thing because I saw the little lady in the car going by, and I stopped her and I said, hey, um, can you come take a look? I got a ticket, but I'm under the, under the time limit. Um, I don't even see a marking on my car. Uh, well, what's the deal here? And she said, oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. And she said, well, you didn't park between the lines. And I said, wait a second. Like 99% of my car, little Prius is, is, is in between the lines. You mean to tell me because like my little exhaust is coming out past the line that I got a ticket? And she said, Well, if you didn't want a ticket, you should have been in between the lines. (laughs) And I said, Wow, no grace. That is harsh. Listen, God is a gracious God. If you are not in Christ, there is no grace for you. It is not 99% in Christ, it is all or nothing. You think she's harsh? God said, I have a requirement, and it is perfect righteousness. If you do not have Jesus, then you do not have salvation. The only way for us to stand before the judgment of a holy God is to have experience what the Bible describes as this great exchange. Our sin, our polluted righteousness has to be placed on Christ and condemned there. And his perfect life, his life of obedience and law-keeping, it has to come to us through faith. We must be in Christ so that when God looks on us, he no longer sees our pathetic attempts at righteousness, but what he sees is Christ's perfect life. All of it is yours because you are in Christ. So to be in Christ means that we are in union with him, In all the merits of his obedience, they clothe us, and now we have perfect righteousness. It is his righteousness imputed to us. Paul says this explicitly in Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 5. He writes, But to the one who does not work, but believes upon him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, Just as David also spoke of the blessing on the man to whom God counts righteous apart from works, as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And that right there, that is imputation before you and I do a single work. The full merit of Christ's righteousness is transferred to our accounts so that God regards us as in. Christ. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel in a tweet right there. If we believe that we can be made right with God on any other basis, what we do is we shame the cross. That's what Paul says in Galatians 2.21. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. That statement is huge because what Paul is saying is if you're trying to get to God any other way, if you're trying to be made right with God, if you're trying to go to heaven, if you're trying to have eternal life apart from Christ, then what you're saying is, God, you made a big, bad, dumb mistake by sending Jesus. He didn't have to come. I could have done it on my own. No, our righteousness must come from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 says this, but by his doing, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Spurgeon, commenting on this idea of being found in him, says this, he says, Paul He longs to be hidden in Jesus and to abide in him as a bird in the air or as a fish in the sea. He pants to be with Christ and so to be with him as a member in his body. He desires to get into Christ as a fugitive shelters himself in a hiding place. He aspires to be so in Christ as to never come out of him so that whenever anyone looks for him, he may find him in Jesus. And that when the great judge of all calls for him, at the last great day, he may find him in Christ. It would be ill, Spurgeon says, to be found where Adam was, shivering under the trees of the garden with his fig leaves on. But to be found beneath the tree of life, wearing the robe of God's righteousness, this will be bliss indeed We are lost out of Christ, but we are found in him. Once met with by the great shepherd, we are found by him, but when safely folded in his love, we are found in him. You see, the whole gist of the gospel could be found right there in verse 9. It's the precious doctrine of the justification that comes by faith and faith alone. But notice also in verse 9 that what Paul is saying here is that the only sufficient ground for your righteousness is what theologians and the reformers called an alien righteousness. Not self-made, not self-effort, not external morality. You know, James Boyce kind of comically said in his commentary, he says, you know what happens when we're trusting in human righteousness to make us right with God? He says it's a bit like playing with monopoly money. The game is colorful, it has colorful money, and it's enjoyable to play. But only a fool would take Monopoly money and then go to the store and try to buy some groceries. A different kind of currency is used in the real world. And he says it is the same with God. There are people who think they're collecting assets before God when they are only collecting human righteousness. God tells them that they must dump the play currency to deal with perfection, goodness, and righteousness why? Because our goodness and righteousness has no value in heaven at all. And Paul said, everyone's looking at me and they think I'm blameless. They think I'm perfect. They think I'm righteous and I've got none of it. But also, secondly, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, you need to know this. This is what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion of the world. Every other religion, you name it, Mormonism, Islam, Um, Jehovah's Witness, Buddhism, Hinduism, all the isms and schisms and schisms of the world, all of them are about what you need to do to be made right with God, what you need to do to reach nirvana, what you need to do in order to have eternal life. Christianity is the only one that says you can't do anything. God has to do that for you. So you have an option. You can pursue a putrid righteousness that is the product of your fleshly works, or you can welcome the gift of perfect righteousness that comes to you by faith in Christ. One righteousness, it's all human effort. The other is this marvelous gift given to us by a good and loving and gracious and compassionate God. Well, secondly, that righteousness allows us to have point number two, relationship. Look at verse 10. Paul says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. And here's where I need to say this. That righteousness is beautiful and as glorious as that is. That imputed righteousness that comes to you, that's not, that's not the end of the story. That's not the ultimate aim. You realize that righteousness is just the appetizer. There's a a main meal, and it's Jesus. Forgiveness, redemption, adoption, all of those things are just the precursor for something that is so much more enjoyable and delightful, and it is Christ Himself. One author said, You know, getting saved is a lot like getting married, it's just the beginning. It's the beginning of a growing, knowing, and sharing relationship. Look back in verse 7. Tell me if you notice something. He said, Those things I have counted as lost for the sake of who? Say it. Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing who? Christ, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain who? Christ, and be found in who. In him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. You see, the passage here is all about Jesus. It's saturated with Christ. And the question we need to pause and just ask is, is he your desire? Do you long to have more of Christ? You know, I know a lot of facts about Kobe Bryant, the late Kobe Bryant. I love Kobe. Kobe uh, went to Lower Merion High School. We graduated the same year of high school, 1996. He was the 13th overall pick by the Charlotte Hornets. We traded Vlade Divac for him, and so Kobe came as a young 17-year-old to the Los Angeles Lakers. He was a five-time NBA champion, two-time scoring leader. He had an 81-point game, the second most points in NBA history. I mean, I can go on and on and on. I even have a friend who played basketball with Kobe Bryant. They won a championship together. He's currently coaching on the Lakers. Um, and I remember talking to him about Kobe and what Kobe did and how Kobe practiced and games Kobe had. But I didn't know Kobe Bryant. I knew a lot about him. It's a big difference. Jesus, he's not interested in just having fans. I think sometimes we think, well, I'm a fan of Jesus. I, I, I know some things about him. I know where he lived. I know where he grew up. I, knew about, I know about the virgin birth. I know about the temptations he overcame. Jesus doesn't want fans. He wants followers. Not followers like on Instagram, about much people following you, you have no idea who they are. Not friends like on Facebook. I don't even know those people, but they're friends. No, Jesus wants committed disciples, those who... Daily, attentively, walk in step with him, both directionally and affectionately. Jesus, he knows you personally, and he wants you to know him intimately and personally as well, not just knowing about him. The Hebrew, the word that we see in the Old Testament is this word yada. It's a beautiful word, and the word means to know. The first time we encounter it is the relationship between Adam and Eve, where Adam knew his wife. But yada means to know completely and to be completely known. One Hebrew scholar defines the word this way. He says it's a mingling of souls. That kind of intimate knowledge. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he writes this, just as a warning, the single greatest danger-facing church members, that's you and me, It's to be interested in Christianity and not Jesus Christ. Christian teaching, Christian application of truth, Christian attitudes, and not on Christ himself. May that never be of us. Spurgeon said too many of us are settling with the wrong knowledge. He writes this, How many brothers do we know who are content only to know Christ's historic life? Never did a man speak like this man, they say, and they confess that never has a man acted with such love as he did. They know all the incidents of his life from the manger to the cross, but they do not know him. They know the life of Christ, but not Christ the life. Spurgeon continues, when I begin to know a man's teaching, the next thing is the desire to know his person. I want to know him. I do care for his actions, My soul would sit down and admire those masterful works of holy arts, his miracles of humiliation, of suffering, of patience, and of holy charity. But far better, I love the hands which wrought these masterful works, the lips which spoke these goodly words, and the heart which heaved matchless love, which was the cause of all. Yes, beloved, we must get farther Than Emmanuel's achievements, however glorious, we must come to know him. And if you're a Christian, that's the cry of your heart. Christ is central, he is the main thing. Notice, look, Paul, he didn't say that I might know forgiveness, or that I might know peace, or that I might know blessing, or that I might know heaven. All of that is included, but Paul's primary gain is Jesus himself. All the benefits come as a result of being found in him. It is primary, and that is why it is Paul's greatest ambition. So he says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Why? Only because I get all of Jesus. And just as a reminder... When Paul wrote this, he's 30 years in, and he's still craving to know him more. Jerry Bridges says, this is the heartbeat of the godly person. He is never satisfied with his present experience of God, and he always, always yearns for more. I remember the very first time that Jess and I went on a date. We were at Master's. Um, and uh, you know I don't have any money, so I'm not taking her out to eat. We're, let's go for a walk. So we do. We go, we go on a walk. We go behind the dorms there, and we're huffing and puffing, and uh, we walk up to the cross where, where, where our dorm is at, and we sat there, and we just talked, and then said, hey, you want to pray? And then we just started praying. And as soon as my wife started praying, I said to myself, man, I need to have her. Oh, I want, I want her. I need her. My soul was just so connected to her heart. And then everything changed. I stopped hanging out with my friends. I stopped playing basketball as much. I stopped doing so well in school, probably. But it was all worth it. Here we are, it's 20 years later, and my greatest human delight is knowing my wife. That's the kind of knowledge Paul has in mind. It is an ever-increasing, ever-expanding, intimate knowledge because the more that we know Christ, the more we're actually satisfied. J.I. Packer tells us that knowing God, it is the sum and substance of what it means to be made in God's image and what it means to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. He created us. He saved us so that we would know God. See, we exist to know him. And so let me ask you, what's the temperature of your spiritual fervor for knowing God? Where are you on the scale? Cold? Lukewarm? Or are you where you should be? Hot. I just I want Christ. You've ordered and structured everything in your life so you can know him better. I think being here this morning, it's a good start. But you can't just jump from Sunday to Sunday and Sunday and think that that is good enough in knowing Christ. The heart of every genuine believer, church, is to know Jesus. And listen, once again, you can know him because he knows you. But that's not all. When Paul says he wants to know him and the power of his resurrection, he doesn't mean two different things. Because knowing the power of his resurrection allows us to know him even better. Christ's resurrection is the greatest display of God's power. Rising from the dead, revealed. I think, Sam, you mentioned this earlier. It is the absolute omnipotent power over the physical world and the spiritual realm. The resurrection was powerful. And pre-conversion was, Paul had no power, no power to obey, no ability to heed the commands of God. He was powerless. And then all that changed on the road to Damascus because he's literally confronted with the resurrected power of Christ. He meets Jesus and his life is forever changed. He begins to experience real power for the first time, resurrection power, that resurrection power awakened his dead soul. That is salvation. And then it supplies him with everything that he needs for life and godliness. That is sanctification. But look, resurrection power, it not only raises the spiritual dead, but right now, currently, it enables you to live the spiritual life. One day, we'll all be raised physically from the dead. That is resurrection power. But that power is currently at work in each of us to be living an obedient life. If you are a Christian, then you know what this tastes like. You've seen, you've heard, you've experienced. You weren't always like this. You didn't love Jesus. You didn't want to sing. You didn't want to read your Bible. But look at the resurrection power in your own life. Now you have a desire to serve Christ. Now you want to defeat sin. Now you want to lead a holy life. You overcome trials depending on that resurrection power. When you are weak, you're really strong. Why? Because of resurrection power. If you ever have a desire to proclaim the gospel and see others saved, do you know why? It's because resurrection power is working inside of you. That's the kind of power that we want. Listen, if you feel like you're struggling right now, falling victim to the same sin, if you feel like you're not loving your spouse the way that you should or your kids, if you're failing in evangelism, you need to be reminded that you have resurrection power. You turn to God. You plead with him. God, give me more of that power. Let me know. Let me let me taste it. Let me see it. And he delights. He delights to give it. What Christian doesn't want the experience of resurrection power. We love it. We felt it. We've seen it at work. And yet Paul says there's something else here that he wants. Secondly, he says the fellowship of his suffering. And you say, well, wait a second. Like, I dig resurrection power. I want to see that. I want to know that more. But this whole idea of fellowship and suffering, what in the world is Paul talking about here? Is he like some weird masochist who enjoys pain? Well, first of all, Paul, he doesn't just talk about any old suffering. There's suffering that comes to you because you're just doing dumb things, right? That happens to me. Uh, I make bad decisions, unwise choices, and I suffer as a result. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's specifically speaking about the kind of suffering that that comes because of our fellowship with Jesus. Paul, he's already said, look, I'm in prison because of Christ. He says, I've suffered conflict because of Christ. I'm being poured out as a drink offering because of Christ. Uh, Turn with me to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians and uh, chapter 4. And as you're turning there, just listen to what Paul says in chapter 1 of that same book. Verse 5, he says, the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. In in chapter 6, he says that he suffered in afflictions and distresses and hardships and beatings and imprisonments and disturbances and labors and sleeplessness and in hunger. But in chapter 4 and verse 17, look what Paul says. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. In every way, afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. And then after he glories in the power of the resurrection, look what he says in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. We oftentimes, we want to experience Sunday, the resurrection, the power, without realizing that in order to get there, you need a Friday. That there is suffering in the Christian life. That power comes to us because of Christ dying. And in the same way, our suffering, if it's for Christ's sake, often comes because you're dying to self. You're choosing Christ over the world. You're choosing commitment over compromise. And if you set your face to obey the word of God, you will have persecution. Christ said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Paul says, if you desire to live godly in this life, you will have persecution. So it will come if you're being obedient. It will not come if you are compromising. And the question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it to suffer for Christ's sake? We suffer for Christ's sake. Recognizing that it is the fire that purifies. That the suffering is worth it because it's stripping us away of ourselves and our wants and our desires and our longings after things of this world. And listen, far from neglecting you when you're suffering, Jesus is refining you through that suffering. He humbles us in our suffering. He causes us to look to him in our suffering. He creates more dependence on him when we suffer for his sake. He deepens our hope and our trust. And wouldn't you agree that the moments of your sweetest fellowship with the Lord is not when things are going extra well, but when you have nothing, when people have turned their back on you, when people are making fun of you and ridiculing you and shaming you, oh, that's when we, when we taste the sweetness of Christ. When we're in pain and we're lost and we're confused and Christ reaches down to you with affection and compassion, he, among everyone else, is uniquely qualified to meet you in your suffering. Why? Because he suffered for your sake and he suffered unjustly. No one deserved to suffer less than Jesus and yet he did. And so he is uniquely qualified. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes this. Therefore, I am well content with weakness and with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. Why? For when I am weak, I am strong. And and the Avila translation is, for when I am weak, that's when Jesus meets me right where I am and strengthens me. We love resurrection power, but we forget oftentimes, church, how beneficial suffering is. Listen to Oswald Chambers. He says, to choose to suffer means that there's something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. Paul only chose suffering because it increased his intimacy with the Lord It increases knowledge of Christ. And since he wanted Jesus more than anything, he's willing to endure anything for the cause of Christ. Righteousness provides the relationship. The intimate relationship includes knowing Christ, fellowshipping with him in his suffering, but Paul says also becoming like him in his death. You see, the knowledge of Christ's suffering comes at an extremely high price, and that price is total obedience. Total obedience. Back in chapter 2, Paul tells us he was in the form of God. But then he became a man, and he became a slave. And he, he became a slave to the point of what? To death, even death on a cross. That, that model for us, that picture for us is a reminder that Jesus' obedience led him to death. And in many ways, what we are doing is we are dying Daily. That's what it means to take up your cross and follow after me. You are dying to yourself. Christianity, if you want to, again, put it in a sentence, it is continually dying to self in order to have more of Christ. Mike Riccardi, he writes this. He says, By counting the knowledge of Christ as so surpassingly valuable that the value of everything the world offers you And the value of everything the world threatens to take from you looks like garbage in comparison to fellowship and communion with Jesus. In other words, listen, if you are in Christ, you are untouchable. There's nothing the world can take from you. Nothing. Because if you have Jesus, you have everything. All the persecution, all the suffering, all the pain, all the daily dying to self, the beating the body into submission, the mortifying of the flesh, all of it is worth it because in doing so, it gives you more of Jesus. When we regard all of our former gains as loss and count all things as loss for the sake of Christ, we gain his righteousness. That righteousness provides the relationship that we so desperately want and long for with Jesus. We experience him, we know him, we know the power of his resurrection, the power that sanctifies, but also, third and finally, one day, church, will be resurrected. Look at verse 11. Paul says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul here is not talking about the resurrection power that he was talking about in verse 10. No, it's a different kind of resurrection. He's talking about the resurrection on the last day. He longs for the resurrection of the dead. And you say, why does he do that? Well, what makes being raised up on the last day such a thrilling thought in Paul's mind is this. It's the culmination of all things. Everything that he lived for, everything that he longed for becomes a reality to him. The completion of God's redemptive plan, the reversal finally of the curse, the marriage feast, the homecoming, our bodies that will put on imperishable and be immortal. Finally, there will no longer be a fight against sin. There will no longer be entrapments, will no longer be entangled and tripped up by our own fleshly desires. This world will pass away. Look, marriage is wonderful. You just heard me. I love my wife, but it doesn't mean my wife and I get along all the time. We have arguments. We have disagreements. And oftentimes the people that we love the most are the people that we hurt the most. And there's these rifts. And there's the separation that our sin causes in our most intimate relationships. And that's what it's like right now as a Christian. That when you sin, that that does something to our relationship with the Lord. But one day there will be no more. No more sin, no more temptation, no more desires or urgings, no more more fleshly inclinations toward the things of unrighteousness. You will be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That is going to be a glorious day. You know, as parents, we tell our kids sometimes um, that we have to leave, whether it's we're at a friend's house or... We, we go on a vacation. I try to avoid saying all things must come to an end. I don't want to ingrain that in my kid's head. Before we came here a couple years ago, we went to Hawaii. Um, we left a, you know, a church that we loved, and we knew that we were coming to a new work here, and we were excited for that, but we needed some time together as a family because it was hard to leave where we left. And so we were in Hawaii and we go to the island of Kauai where there's not a lot of hustle and bustle, but it's, it's quiet and it's serene and it's beautiful and we're on the beaches. And as the days keep ticking, it's like, oh, we got to go home. I just want to stay here. I love it. It's so relaxing and refreshing and the sun is out and we're in the water and we're playing as a family on the beach and I don't want to go anywhere. I love this place. You know, when we get to heaven, it. You never have to leave. There's no more death. Everything that we long for, that desire to want to stay and enjoy, will be a reality for all of us. Why? Because of Christ's righteousness given to you because you are in him. He loves you that much. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we we love you and we are grateful for the clarity of your word. God, we know from the scriptures that we do not possess righteousness in and of ourselves, that we cannot attain righteousness that will make us acceptable in your sight. But God, we depend on you. We look to you. We, we need Christ. And Father, for those here who might not be in Christ. They have not repented of their sin. They have not trusted Jesus for forgiveness. They have not bowed the knee to the King. Oh Lord, I pray that you would work in their heart. Help them to see their utter bankruptcy. Help them to see that everything that they're putting their hope and their trust in apart from Christ will only condemn them to hell for all of eternity. Also a place that is infinite in its duration. But Lord, there is a way of escape and it is through the precious precious blood of Christ. Oh, I pray that you would awaken dead souls, that that same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead would even today resurrect hearts, bring people to life from spiritual death to enjoy, to cherish, to love and serve you. Oh Lord, what a treat. We thank you for the ways that you've ministered to us today, and we pray that you would help us in our ever-increasing, ever-growing knowledge, love, and longing for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.